0: Delirium. Oh, like
1: Delirium. Mm-hmm. This probably matters most to me, even more than constipation. Really? Mm-hmm. And we know how
2: much constipation means to you. It means a lot to me,
0: <laughs> Allison. is full of. It Oh God. Means a lot. Jody just wants
2: to use the apple. <laughs> okay. <too. laughs> All right, that's gone. That hey, okay. episode is gone, Jody. Done. Right. Delirium girls. <laughs> So why do we
1: care about delirium? Well, man, I care about delirium because this is these are the calls that will keep me up at night. Uh, delirium mm. in general um, worsens at night, and so families, uh, nurses, uh, will call you at night. Um, and I don't like getting up at night. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, um, I would say... When we talk to family members about what is most distressing about seeing their loved ones um, on our palliative care unit um, or uh, caring for them in the home, um, it is terrible to watch somebody you love in pain. But even worse to watch someone you love uh, confused, mm-hmm. agitated, aggressive, scared, swearing, um, not knowing where they are. It's it's really hard on families. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it feels like they've lost them before they've lost them in some cases because that's not the same person. So I agree. Yeah. And I would say, like, um, this is one of the areas we talk in palliative care about how the patient and their loved ones are under our care. We're not just looking after the patient. And I think that comes through more than ever when we're talking about delirium. Obviously, because we have sometimes limited ability to communicate with that patient mm-hmm. while they're delirious, so we're often communicating with their family members and their loved ones, um, who become their surrogate decision makers in, the, in that moment.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. So, what? How would we define delirium? Just for um, our
0: learner, one listener.
2: Yeah, so so I would say definitely we want to look at that um, attention. So this inattention, fluctuating attention is a really key feature for delirium. Yeah, and then the other big thing is a
1: change in the level of
2: consciousness.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, with dementia, you tend to have patients who are um, alert, uh, but they're not making a lot of sense or their uh, memory is quite poor. Um, On the other hand, with delirium, you can have someone who's hyperactive, so um, very agitated, moving around, uh, but doesn't really know where they want to move to, or hypoactive, someone who's sedated and falling asleep while you're talking to them and can't uh, focus on the conversation. Mm
2: -hmm. And then, of course, mixed, which is a combination of both.
1: Yeah, and uh, the other um, part of the definition of delirium is it's fluctuating, and it's due to a medical cause, uh, so it's not due to a psychiatric cause. Um, and, uh, you know, although people with dementia can get delirium, it is different than dementia. Um, also, in time course, in that uh, it happens generally acutely over days or weeks.
2: Yeah. And you were mentioning, Alison, that a lot of it is missed, so all, about half of cases of delirium are missed Yeah, in the the hospital setting
1: uh, by healthcare workers. So, you know, we see people, um, you know, we're in and out of the room and uh, often not checking. So many uh, hospital units will have uh, delirium screens that uh, they will ask their nurses um, to use, things like the confusion rating scale.
2: Right. And I would argue that mostly when we're talking about uh, missed delirium, we're often thinking about hypoactive delirium because it can be harder to pick up. These are people who often look withdrawn. Sometimes they're mistaken as being depressed or having a low mood. Um, obviously, the hyperactive delirium case is going to be more noticeable. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would say the hyperactive delirium, you know, they're bothering um, health care workers. They're, you know, <laughs> pulling out IVs and catheters and
0: getting out of bed falling
1: out of bed and and very troublesome so you hear about them (laughs) and the hypoactive deliriums often someone will just say oh they're pleasantly confused Mm -hmm. Um, but we can't assume it's pleasant although Amani, you
2: have encountered some pleasant deliriums Uh, yeah so I always think like if I could be this kind of delirious this is what I would choose so I had a lovely patient um who spent some time on our palliative care unit a few years ago. And she was definitely in a mixed delirium, but they had her out, we called you know the, the, the overcapacity mm-hmm. beds, in front of the nursing desk, so she could be watched a little bit more closely. But she thought she was in Mexico, beachside. Mm-hmm. So every time a nurse would walk by, because we just have those curtains that you would push aside, every time a nurse or a healthcare aide would walk by, she would ask when her margarita was coming by, <laughs> and she'd just get angry when they put her pants on because she thought she was beachside, and she was in her too hot bathing, hot bathing suit. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You do get hot with pants on a beach, Jody. That's correct. <laughs> so it was just really fun, and she was just loving it. She was like, this is the best vacation, yeah. and I just thought, I want that flavor of yeah. delirium. Agreed.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's what I would want. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I do think um, a person's personality factors into this, and in that people who have been in control all their lives, I think, are more bothered by delirium than people who have, uh, say, dabbled in recreational drugs or just had a little less control. In so their you're lives. saying
2: she was a wild child?
1: <laughs> it's possible. Okay. You're saying we're <laughs> <spreading> yes, <them. laughs> yeah. we're screwed.
2: We're too uptight. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Probably. Yeah um so what's your approach, Amani?
2: yes someone
1: comes in uh to the palliative care unit in a hyperactive delirium how do you how do you go about figuring out what's
2: causing it i want to do the sing song because you started with singing mm, okay or the oprah Dimps. i can't do the oprah <laughs> how does she do how does she do it? Uh, okay, You, get a, done. And you yes. get a dims, and you get a dance and you get a But she also goes, oh, all the time. Anyways, whatever, <laughs> dims. <laughs> so that's a way to think about the differential for delirium. So drugs, infection, metabolic, and structural. So if we're thinking about drugs, we're thinking about, well, maybe recreational drugs, but often we're thinking about pharmaceutical drugs that we've prescribed, um, opioids, anticholinergic, categories are often top of mind and there's a lot of anticholinergic drugs hey Jody. yes there are yeah so what are the things other than opioids which are very common that you'd see as like big offenders on the list for Ooh, you
0: I have a story oh family mm, story okay um my husband's grandpa who is now 101 I think he was a couple this is a couple of years ago so he was very late 90s um had a bit of a trouble with a hypersalivation and so the doctor decided to put him on a transderm v-patch um, behind his ear, and he went. I like guess scopol- I know I was patch. like, We're talking
2: about sco- okay. Sorry, I couldn't yeah, remember yeah. the generic
0: yeah. name. Yeah. Of it. <laughs> um He had a time. He okay. got extremely delirious and went to the hospital.
2: Was it a fun time?
0: Um. Oh, well, not for his family, okay. but for him. Okay. <laughs> um, so my mother-in-law actually called me up one day, and she's like. I don't... They haven't figured out why... He's got this patch behind his ear. Could that be it? And I was like, take it off. Take it off right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't put a 90-something-year-old on. Oh, scopolamine. So he cleared up. And when he cleared up, he was like, did I have any fun? <laughs> so, <laughs> Which I think he did. That's awesome. Yeah. He's, he's a pretty <laughs> fantastic guy. But that's a very clear case of a anticholinergic drug mm-hmm. in the wrong population of the patient, mm-hmm. uh, causing a very acute delirium. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: other big offenders? Um, Steroids. We use them a lot in palliative care. Uh, And you can certainly get a steroid psychosis. Some people are quite sensitive
0: Mm -hmm. to that.
2: I just think there's so many drugs that are anticholinergic that we don't even appreciate. Yeah. So certainly some of the antipsychotics, which we'll get into, have an anticholinergic effect. But even, you know, Gravel, TCAs. um, There's a lot. More than you think of anticholinergic effect. But, yeah, yeah, even
0: buscapan. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that we mm-hmm. use to treat other symptoms in palliative care. Mm-hmm. That's our problem. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. in nature, nature. So, and uh,
1: study on, uh, out of Edmonton many years ago, but they looked at causes of delirium on patients who came into the palliative care unit, and medications were number one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So look at that for sure. And when um, I think of the drug part of DIMS, I also think of drug withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, often we think, well, patients don't have bad habits, but um, they can just like anyone else. So they could be on chronic benzodiazepines or they could drink a lot of alcohol. And when they come into hospital, um, these things can be stopped inadvertently and you might see withdrawal.
0: Yep. Yeah. I saw a Trazodone withdrawal because of that one time. Mm. Trazodone mm-hmm. get, didn't get restarted in hospital. Huh. He went a little...
2: I saw a Zopaclone withdrawal. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it was weird because it's not one that this was, you know, twelve years ago yeah. and we didn't think Zopoclone caused withdrawal syndromes. I do not like mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, and then infection obviously is the next um letter in our little acronym. So we often think we think clinically, right? We're doing a history at an exam and we're taking a look at if they Uh, clinically look like they might be brewing an infection and then we can do a basic workup based on that history i i don't like chasing um i don't like looking for a white blood cell count unless i have a good reason to Mm -hmm. because otherwise there's it's not specific especially in the palliative care population and we never want to treat a high white blood cell count that's just bad medicine so usually looking at the history and the exam to then decide if i need to investigate further with labs such as cbc Urine, RNM, and CNS, chest X-ray, et cetera, based on what I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. Um, and then metabolic. So, what are we talking about there when we talk about metabolic?
1: Well, I'd say most commonly in our palliative care population, we have renal failure, we have liver failure, and we have hypercalcemia of malignancy. Mm -hmm. So, those are the big ones to look for. Agreed. Um, you can certainly see other things like uh, hyponatremia. Um, mm-hmm. If that's severe enough, you'll have a delirium with that, and that can even happen just with volume contraction, or it can be uh, perineoplastic hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. So, um, definitely you need to do your electrolytes, your creatinine, um, calcium, mm-hmm. albumin. Mm-hmm. If you believe in doing albumin with your calcium. No, do that's do you a believe whole other it, rabbit hole. Allison? I don't. No, I don't I know. Okay. Yeah, so we just stick with calcium. Yeah, I mean, and then uh, liver function tests, if, if you suspect liver failure. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then structural. So I often think about CNS, so... Um, yeah, exactly. So brain metastases or brain tumors. Um, do you go to a CT scan right away of the head? Um, I think, you know, if they have a cancer uh, where
1: uh, mets to brain are common, um, so lung... Uh, breast, Um, those are probably the two most common cancers where we're seeing the brain myths, then um, I might um, consider it sooner, Um, but otherwise I usually try and treat uh, what I found first and then do a CT scan a few days later if I'm not getting
2: any improvement. Agreed. And of course, overarching everything we're talking about, we, we have to take in consideration where our patient is in their course of illness, and their trajectory of illness, and what their goals of care are. So, for example, if doing a CT scan of the brain is not going to change my treatment because they're far too frail to tolerate radiation treatment, for example, then I really have to sit back and think about why why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other um,
1: point that I like to make to learners is that uh, in that study in Edmonton, of palliative care patients arriving on the palliative care unit with delirium they had on average three causes of delirium mm-hmm. so uh, my point here is that if you have one cause don't stop looking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, look for two look for three because on average there are three
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and that's a very good point that's a good point and it's not often something i see people do clinically so mm-hmm. yeah it's a good it's a really good point to remember um Great. Shall we talk about dying versus delirium? How do you know when somebody is actively dying versus a potentially reversible delirium? Mm, I, I think
1: that's a really uh, important question because delirium can look like dying. Uh, you basically have a person who's bedbound, um, unable to speak for themselves, uh, looking very distressed, and many family members Um assume that that person is dying. Um, one thing I think about is I ask the family about the recent trajectory of what's been happening with the person. So the person was up and out at Walmart uh, last night. And then um, this Especially morning Walmart. they're need a lot of energy. But no, if they're up and about uh, and active the week before and, uh, then they're delirious and bedbound, you know, a day or two later. Um, that makes me think more about reversible causes for delirium because in general, a cancer death um, is a, a slow deterioration where a person spends more and more time in bed um, and then they uh, have less time where they're awake and they're more confused.
2: Totally. Yeah. Um,
1: what else do you... How else do you differentiate a money?
2: Yeah, no, I think the trajectory of illness is really important. So we look at that rate of, de- we use the PPS, so the Palliative Performance Scale commonly. So we look at that just to help encapsulate in one number all of those things that you're talking about, how they've been eating and moving and energy levels, cognition, self-care, all of that stuff that they've been able to do and how quickly that's declined. Um, how else do I look at it? I think there's other signs where, where you know somebody's actively dying. Um, certainly if they look like they're very cactic k- and wasted. Uh, if, then, of course, if we're looking more terminally, you're looking at breathing changes. Um, consciousness levels often are very declined. Their ability to take in water is very limited. So there's different signs when you're getting closer to the end.
1: Yeah, and then I probably also ask the family about medication history. So if mm-hmm. there's been a recent increase in opioids, for mm-hmm. example, then I'm gonna think uh, that it's more likely gonna be due to opioids for sure. uh, than yep. medication. medication dying. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think it's it's an important question because sometimes you just don't know, and mm-hmm. then you've got to talk with the family about the fact that you're not sure which one mm-hmm. it is, and then the decision has to be made again whether. They, whether you do investigations, how
2: much you treat mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I find families often pretty forthcoming with medications. Like they're often the first, I don't know, anecdotally, I don't know if you've experienced the same, but if they've been prescribed a new medication, a new opioid, they're pretty forthcoming with that. You oh, absolutely, they? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Another mm-hmm. um, real uh, little nugget of a question for delirium is when you do have a patient who's in a delirium and they're groaning and moaning, you'll often get a call um, from their nurse saying that they're in pain and um, could you prescribe more opioid? So, um, how do we differentiate or how do we assess pain mm-hmm. in a delirious patient?
2: Yeah, it's very challenging. It can be very challenging, but if somebody is unable to localize their pain, that is my first red flag or, you know, gives me a bit of pause. Um, so if they complain of pain all over or if it's just general moaning and groaning without further elaboration or being able to specify, then I start to wonder if it's delirium or not. And then within delirium, we can branch off and talk about opioid induced neurotoxicity as a subtype of that. And we've talked about that a little bit in our previous episode, Mm -hmm. one of our previous episodes. Um, but, Basically, with that, you're looking at, again, pain all over. You're looking at people who have um, myoclonus when it's quite severe, um, and then that confusion, and the paradoxical worsening of pain. So if there's a history of using opioids or pain medication in general, and the pain is not at all relieved, you start to think about, is this delirium? And if it's opioids specifically that they're taking more and more of, and the pain is paradoxically getting worse, you start to think about opioid-induced neurotoxicity as well. Yeah. So some clues there. Now, one thing that I've done, sometimes it's really hard to differentiate. And so sometimes what I've done in the past is to say, um, if you've given pain medication and, say, two doses has not had any impact, I kind of monitor that. And then we'll try with using a medication such as a neuroleptic, <laughs> which we'll talk about later, and see if that makes an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of that trial and error help, helps me gauge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, a study out of Edmonton,
1: man, they did a lot of studies in their day, um, showed that when patients were in delirium, they received more opioids than when they came out of delirium. So either we're misinterpreting um, the manifestations of delirium in patients as pain, or delirium is causing patients to be more vocal uh, about pain. But either way they were receiving more opioids during their delirious episode
2: so it's a common pitfall yeah Yeah. so careful careful kids yeah Yeah. (laughs) yeah for sure we talked about pain versus delirium i think the next question is um investigation so are you always thinking about investigating every underlying cause of delirium or are there cases where that doesn't quite make sense
1: Yeah, I think this is a really tough question when you're um, looking after a patient at home. Um, Because when a patient is at home, there's limited investigations that you can do in a timely fashion. And yet to take someone out of the home can be um, just a very big deal to the patient and their family. Um, So, you know, if you have a patient at home who has said that they are comfort care, um, then you really have to think about how much you want to investigate this patient uh, for reversible causes of delirium. Um, But the question is, you want them to be comfortable and delirium is uncomfortable, so you can make a case that this patient should be investigated
2: if you think you're gonna find a cause. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think it goes back again to what was their baseline prior to this episode. So if they were pretty reasonably High functioning and you think you can reverse it back so that they can regain some of that important quality of life, then you can make an argument that it's within their goals of care, even if it is comfort focused care, that it is uh promoting comfort and quality of life. On the other hand, if somebody was deteriorating and had a very, you know, poor quality of life by their account, family account, um, and you're then you start to question if it if it makes sense at that point. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, what about treatment, Jody? What about treatment, Allison? <laughs> what do you? What is your go-to?
1: Well, um, I think number one would be uh, treat the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've talked about the different um, causes in our DIMs. Probably the only one I would add to that would be dehydration. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. And, you know, often uh, it is medication related, can often be opioids in which we
2: do an opioid rotation, which we've already talked about. What Um, is it?
0: The rotate, hydrate,
2: palliate? Yeah, rotate, hydrate, palliate. That's what we talked about in a previous episode Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And so basically that's what opioid, rotation, hydrate, and palliate meaning symptom pat
0: them on the back. Neuroleptics
2: and benzos, which we'll talk about neuroleptics and benzos, yeah. Well, what about the environment, Imani? The environment, non-pharmacologic, of course. How can we forget? So I think sometimes we don't do our... It's hard in a hospital setting because it's kind of counter to all of the principles of non-pharmacologic management. You want to have a nice routine for day and night. So day-night reversal is one of the earliest signs of delirium. So often. So you want to have in the morning time that bright light orienting people to the time of day and similarly at night time dimming the lights, quiet environment, Um, which doesn't happen in the hospital setting can be very disorienting and then the noise factor certainly is part of it if somebody's wearing hearing aids or glasses you know has any kind of you don't want any sensory compromise that way because that can worsen the delirium and then constantly reorienting people to the time of day who you are where they are all of that kind of thing can be helpful
1: yeah and i was saying um when we were chatting about this earlier that i will often ask families to stay in hospital with the patient because i find uh, delirious patients do respond better to a familiar voice or face and Mm -hmm. um, so we will use less neuroleptics if if family can stay Mm -hmm. it's not always possible because families are often completely worn out by the time uh, patients admitted to hospital Um, but i do
0: i do ask them that yeah that it's also been a challenge with covid as well, having family members restricted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely.
1: Um, so if all of those environmental things
2: don't work, mm-hmm. what about the drugs? Yeah. So what are the two categories of drugs we talk about for delirium? Are you
0: talking neuroleptics and
2: benzos? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we all say this with a little bit of an awkward... <laughs> yeah, they're because they're not our favorite. Be, well, they kind of are, they kind of not. We're kind yeah. of like talking out of the side of our mouths <laughs> when we talk about it. Because, like, unfortunately, this is one of the areas where all evidence points to them, to neuroleptics not being effective. Um, evidence to date, anyways. And benzodiazepines have concern about about worsening uh, delirium, and yet
0: they're kind of our only options. Yeah,
2: I would argue.
0: Yeah. So, so I, yeah, they need need to be used with care, and with
2: respect.
0: Respect. Yes, yeah. I like that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I think it also depends on which context you're using, um, like which it, what type of delirium. So if this is a terminal delirium we can be a lot more liberal with our use of neuroleptics and benzodiazepines because our goal there is to calm the agitation um, and to give that kind of peace to the patient and their family members at the end of life. But if it's somebody where you're thinking, again, they've had a higher uh, functional status prior to this episode, you're hoping to reverse and improve the delirium, um, we want to be more cautious because they're not benign drugs. So in that case, and Alison was mentioning this before, and I'm quite similar, certainly if it's a hypoactive delirium, I'm not touching the neuroleptics. There's no evidence that they help whatsoever in that case. If it's a mixed or hyperactive delirium, I'll put like an as-needed order um, when non-pharmacologic measures are not effective. And only as a temporizing measure and always trying to remember to take taper them off of it when the delirium has improved.
0: And what is your go-to? I would say haloperidol versus methotrimepernid. Mm. Methotrimeprisine. Yeah, all
2: right, yeah. So I definitely, again, depends on the context, but if it's my first my first choice is haloperidol. Mm-hmm. Less dating. What about you, Allison? What's your first choice for neuroleptics? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
1: think we've never had any studies that show um, that uh, any of the atypical neuroleptics uh, work any better. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, they do have fewer side effects. In our population, we don't, we haven't mm-hmm. really... Uh, found that and so uh, Haldol uh, also because it can be given subcutaneously which is quite helpful in our population
2: Right, so again we're talking specifically about the palliative care population here different than the geriatrics population, we'll leave it at that but yeah, Haloperidol we think has more specific and potent dopamine antagonism Um, and nozanin, sorry methotrimeprazine, so bad it's (laughs) a lot easier to to (laughs) say (laughs) the dependent methotrimeprazine is very not is very broad acting mm-hmm. many different receptors, and I tend to think of people who are more terminal delirium, almost kind of. I'm wondering if the next step is palliative sedation, yeah, therapy, um, and that's when I'm thinking about. Methotrimeprazine, certainly not somebody who's mobile or ambulatory, no, yeah, um, and then of course we have other medications in between there. So we have quetiapine, um, olanzapine risperidone for some reason we don't see a lot of olanzapine or risperidone in palliative no. care locally I'll speak to us here yeah. in Calgary
0: I'd say the olanzapine is almost exclusively for like the nausea more than anything else mm-hmm. we, are def- we definitely go to the quetiapine mm-hmm. for agitation mm-hmm. anxiety and I think easily. it's
2: just like different enough <laughs> than mm-hmm. haloperidol mm-hmm. so it's a, a lot less potent of a dopamine antagonist it also has some anxiolytic properties mm-hmm. um,
0: We also seem to be able to get away with pretty low doses Mm -hmm.
2: um very different than the psychiatric absolutely yeah psychosis kind of
0: a lot less side effects that way
2: Mm -hmm. what if they don't work Mm -hmm. yeah so and are we talking about terminal delirium here
1: Mm, well we could probably just touch on both types of Mm -hmm. delirium so if you have what you think is a reversible delirium, but you're not able mm. to reverse it. Is it, therefore, a terminal delirium?
2: Mm. <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can't reverse it. I mean, it's really hard to know. If you really have looked thoroughly at the underlying causes and you can't un- identify an underlying cause, and you know, often I'm bringing in my geriatrics and psychiatry colleagues yes. to assist, yeah, and um, we'll use neurology as well because mm-hmm. uh, you, you, there are
1: more rare causes mm-hmm. of delirium, which mm-hmm. we're not speaking about in mm-hmm. this uh, podcast, like limbic encephalopathy. and mm-hmm. um, So you want to make sure that you
2: really have um, gone through the... Yeah, that it's not some um, strange perineoplastic syndrome or or maybe it's, you know... You yeah. Know, hopefully you've looked at all of the broad broad differential before. If somebody, especially if they have good functional status prior to this and has suddenly an irreversible delirium, really worrisome. Um, those are tough cases and definitely needs a multidisciplinary approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And if we think it's terminal delirium, but we're not managing the agitation with our
2: antipsychotics. Yeah, I think that's when we start thinking about benzodiazepines and palliative sedation therapy. Mm-hmm. So if this is truly irreversible, refractory, intolerable suffering in the form of delirium, that we think is terminal delirium, this would be the most common cause for palliative, most common reason, sorry, for palliative sedation therapy.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's, um, it happens for sure where we can't manage delirium, but uh, mm-hmm. luckily we have midazolam. Um, mm-hmm. And if midazolam doesn't work,
0: Mm,
2: Then we're talking about other agents. So, I mean, once in a while, thankfully I haven't had to do this very often, Um, but once in a while on the unit we've used propofol, but off the unit there's an old um, anti-epileptic drug that's a bit clunky, and it's called phenobarbital. So Mm -hmm. we use that. It's actually silly expensive. Um, Is it really? Yeah. And the pharmacokinetics are clunky, like it takes a long time to reach steady state, mm-hmm. um, but it's something that we can use as a backup.
1: Yeah, and basically at that point, we're aiming to uh, just sedate someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: keep so, them yeah, so palliative sedation therapy is a whole topic unto itself, but basically the primary intent is to sedate and reduce level of consciousness. Um, to varying degrees to alleviate suffering that's not alleviated by any other means
0: after a usual long conversation with family and mm-hmm. patient.
1: yeah
2: well do we have anything else to say kids no i think just that that awareness piece is really important because we know that almost all people who before they die have delirium so it's exceedingly common mm-hmm. in our population so having some basic understanding of how to assess and manage is really important
0: but i would say on the other hand too not writing it off as a terminal of delirium just because they are a palliative patient and making sure you're looking through all of those other causes
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and look after the family it, yeah it's, it's a lot of suffering yeah. lots of distress For
0: listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Sreenichari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.